We're going through Psalm 2 today. I thought about starting with Psalm 1. That's a good one. But, but because we just had the 4th of July, I wanted to go through Psalm 2. And I'll tell you why. It kind of relates. You may have noticed that uh, God doesn't seem very popular in our society these days. It seems like most people care more about what Hollywood produces than what God provides. And people talk more about Washington, D.C. than God's kingdom. And for all the churches across the country, this country is filled with churches. And even in this town, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a church in this town. We've got churches everywhere. And you would think for all those churches that everybody, not just Christians, but everybody would know the Bible. Because the people who go to the church ought to be we're supposed to be out telling people about the Bible, right? So you'd think everybody in the country would know at least something about the Bible. But most of the Christians I talk to can't tell an epistle from an apostle. They haven't got a clue what's in the, in the Bible. They, they can tell you, I mean, this is the Christians. They can tell you the, the names and the statistics of all their the favorite teams. All, every member on every team, they know their basketball and their football and their whatever. They've got it all memorized. They can remember everything that happened on their favorite TV shows last week. They can quote movie lines over and over from all their favorite movies. They can talk your ears off about what the government is doing wrong. They can't remember the last time they told somebody about the Gospel. The only Scripture that seems like most people can remember are John 3.16 and Matthew 7.1. And that's about it. And if they can remember a single point that a pastor said on Sunday, even past lunchtime on Sunday afternoon, it's a miracle. I mean, it's amazing how much, how little people think about God, how little people think about the Bible, how little people, how much, how little attention people give to God and what He is doing and what He's called us to do. God is kind of getting pushed aside for more entertaining pursuits in our nation. And that's not just in the, in the culture at large. That's in the church. God is getting pushed aside in the church for more entertainment than substance, than, than scriptural substance. And, and Psalm chapter 2, because the question is, well, why is that? Why is this falling apart? And chap, Psalm chapter 2 kind of asks the same question, not just about our country, but about countries across the world. It says, why do the nations rebel? Or why do they rage? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The kings of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and His anointed King. Some nations in our world outright declare their hatred for God, for the Christian God, for the Jewish God. They rage against Jesus Christ. And they just as soon cut your head off as to look at you if you profess a faith in Jesus. That There are nations where that is the way of life. Other nations simply deny His authority. They won't outright slaughter you, but they'll basically say that you're a crazy person if you believe in God. In places like China and other kind of atheistic nations, there is no higher authority than the state. The state is your God. They don't mind if you have a God of some other kind as long as He falls under the authority of the state. And as long as your highest allegiance is to the government, then they're okay with you. And then there's the U.S., where God has kind of become a mascot. Not so much a, a god of the country, but he's become someone that we'll put on our coins and put on our stickers and bumper stickers and 
signs and flags. American politicians will use the name of Jesus in order to get elected. And then they'll kind of drop it. And, and you'll hear lots and lots of speeches where they'll say, God bless America. Like it's the tagline at the end of the speech. Kind of like play ball at the end of the, Amer- the national anthem. It doesn't really mean anything. They just know that that's where they ought to put that. It's kind of like everybody says amen at the end of a prayer. I would guess that most Christians have no idea what amen means. But they say it anyway. And that's what politicians They say, God bless America, because that's what you're supposed to say. But they don't actually care about what God's will is for them and for this nation. They just want to use His name so that they can be popular. And I have a hunch that that upsets God even more than the people who outright hate Him. Then the people who will kill you for declaring Jesus' name, I think that upsets God. But the people who use God's name in vain, I think that makes God even more angry. Our nation isn't hot or cold. We are lukewarmly indifferent when it comes to God. And asking God to bless your agenda without really caring what God's will is, is is not only stupid, it's an insult to the King of Kings. Turning to God and saying, God, I want you to bless this, not because I care what you want, but because this is what I want. And whatever I want, I want you to make your priority. Back in April, you might have heard about a certain foolish president who asked God to bless Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood. They kill, they slaughter a million babies a year. They chop them up into bits and throw their little bodies in the garbage. Can you believe that your president Ask God to bless that. That's the kind of idiocy that people use when they're asking God to bless things that have nothing to do with God. That's like asking your dad to borrow the car keys as you're punching him in the face. It's stupid. It's an insult. And, and, and I don't know how God had the restraint not to do to Obama what he did to Herod Agrippa when he stood out. And you can look up that story for yourself if you don't know it. Suffice it to say that God is not our national mascot. Just because He's in our motto, in our money, that, you know, that we trust in God, or that we say God bless America, and God bless this, and God bless that, that doesn't make Him our puppet to do whatever we want. Jesus is not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's a Libertarian. No, I'm kidding. Jesus is not a... Jesus is not... Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The world is His footstool. And no social club, no political group, no kingdom, no nation can stuff Almighty God in their back pocket like they own Him. God owns the world. And in spite of that reality, most of the world's nations want to rebel and free themselves from God's rule. And so they demonstrate their disdain for the Lord by rejecting His Son and by rejecting His Word. And it reminds me a bit, There's a, a, we were sitting out on our porch the other day and I was watching the neighbors. There was one neighbor walking their dog. It was a woman. And she had this dog and it was a big muscular, I don't know, it was you know, probably some mutt, but it was a big dog, muscular dog. Like you've seen the dogs when they're, the, the owner's trying to pull them back. And that's this kind of dog. And she's walking one way. And coming the other way is another neighbor and they've got two little wiener dogs. You know, the little little hot dogs. And as they're getting closer, the wiener dogs see this big, massive monster dog. And the wiener dog starts barking. Bark, 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 bark. 
And I'm thinking, if you had any idea what that dog would do to you, like you're like bite-sized to the... And he just he didn't care. I'm bark, bark, bark. And as they got closer, the woman with the big dog had to kind of use all her might to kind of pull the other dog around. He wasn't barking. He wasn't upset. He knew, you just get a little closer. A little closer. And I'll take care of that bark. And it's like, that's what the nations raging against God are like those little wiener dogs raging against that big, massive whatever it was. And it's, it's idiotic. Acts 4 reveals that David was uh, the author of Psalm 2. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. There's some people wrote other Psalms. Probably most of them, probably about all of them, were written during the monarchy of Israel. When, there was, you know, when David was on the throne and his descendants were on the throne, pretty much all the Psalms were written during that time period. And usually by important people, like King David. And so there's, there's something interesting to think about when you think about the Psalms, like Psalm 2, when a king took the throne properly, they were anointed. Remember King Saul, the first king, he was anointed by the prophet, and then David was going to be the next king. While he was still a boy, he was anointed by the prophet to be the next king. And so when you become king, you're anointed as king. And the word Messiah simply means anointed one. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. So when a king of Israel, like David, took the throne, they could be referred to as God's Messiah, as God's anointed one. They were anointed to be king by God's prophet. And so they're God's anointed, literally. And in 2 Samuel, God makes a covenant with David. And he tells David that God is going to raise up one of his descendants and he will be God's son, and God will be his father, and God will establish his kingdom forever. And in part of that covenant, we look, we look back from our vantage point on history, and we've seen all these things unfold, and so we know who he's talking about. And if you look at the, the chapter, in part it's talking about Solomon, because we saw Solomon, who was one of who was one of David's kids, and Solomon built God's temple. And that was part of the prophecy that one of your descendants is going to build me a temple. And so it looks like Solomon, but then there's other parts where he says, he's going to be my son, I'm going to be his father, and his reign will never end. He'll be established forever, basically. And we know that's not Solomon, because eventually David's line was cut off for a while. And so... We know, we can look back in history and see that that was Jesus Christ. But the people who read the psalm, you know, when David wrote the psalm and he sang it as a song before people, they probably heard that. And would their understand, the, the original audience of psalm, when they heard the songs, they logically considered them to be a reference to the actual king when it said God's anointed one or God's Messiah or God's king. You know, the, they probably figured it's the actual king on the throne of Israel right then. But many years down the road, probably during or, or, or after Israel's captivity, remember that the kings were cut off because Babylon attacked and took everybody captive. So all these Jews are in, in Babylon. That's when they started to, to compile all these psalms together and preserve them in a book. They knew it was important. We've got to save these and preserve these. And so they took all these psalms that the kings had written down through the years and they put them together in one book of psalms that, that we have in our Bible and as the Jews were reading that as captives, after the, the kings had been cut off and, and the rule had ended and they were all slaves in a foreign land, they looked at that and they, 
and you wonder how they thought about it, how they felt about it, because it talks about your reign will never end. You'll be on the, the throne forever. Your, your kingdom will, will, will be eternal. And you wonder, well, what did they, were they mournful because that, that didn't come true? Were they nostalgic? Man, if only that would have happened, if we could still be in power, remembering the glory that Israel once had. Israel was an amazing nation under Solomon. I mean, they, they, they reaped all sorts of blessings from God. Or maybe they were filled with frustration and grief, knowing that it was their own fault. The smart ones knew it was their own fault that they had been kicked out, that they had been taken captive because God allowed the, conquered, the conquering nations to take over Israel and to take all the people captive. Or maybe, the, maybe some of them were forward-thinking enough to have some hope for the future because David, in all his might and Solomon in all his glory, none of the kings of Israel ever attain the kind of victory that Psalm 2 and some of the other Psalms talk about. The nations rage and plot in vain, it says. They, they rage, they, they're against God, and they plot, but they plot in vain. That they can't actually stand up against God. And how does God respond to that? This is what Psalm 2 says in verse 3. The nations say, let's tear off the shackles they've put, us, put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. They're talking about God's ropes, God's shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. So the nations are raging, they're plotting, and they're saying, we're going to tear off God's shackles, we're going to get rid of God's cords. And the enthroned one in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. Then He angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in His rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So a captive Jew would read that and, and think this has to be a prophecy. They either think that the Bible is stupid and doesn't count because it hasn't come true, or if they have faith, they, they say this has got to be stuff that God has yet to do. Because if, if God actually upholds a king, if God upholds a king, then nobody can defeat him. And anybody with any faith who knew God knew that he doesn't make empty promises. So if God says that he is going to install his king in Zion, nobody's going to be able to mess with that king. So the idea of a Messiah, who not just a Messiah, not just a Messiah who was you know, God's anointed ruler temporarily, but the idea of a Messiah who would not just be a king, but who would fulfill all the plans that God talked about in the Psalms, the, the, that Messiah is revealed by the Psalms, is revealed by prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. I mean, we get information about the Messiah all over the place through Scripture. And the prophets took this idea of an anointed one and they went beyond just another king, just another son of David. And any Jew old enough with, to have knowledge about their nation's history knew that there had been plenty of fallible rulers, plenty of kings who did the wrong thing, who, who sinned against God, who worshipped idols, who led their nation down the wrong path. And, and, and they knew that the Jewish people were paying the price for being an idolatrous nation. And, and the prophets pointed to a Messiah and a king who, was un, who would never do that, who was unlike any king that the nation had, or, or that the world had ever seen before. God painted the picture of an anointed one who would not be a lowercase m Messiah, but an uppercase m Messiah, who would be the Messiah, 
the ruler and, and a king who would be king of kings and, and who would fulfill all of God's purpose that they kept reading about in the prophets and the, and the Psalms talked about and whom the nations would swear their allegiance to. So all the rest of the world would swear their allegiance to this Messiah that God would put in rule over Israel and the world. And it's easy for us to look at, I mean, there's a plethora of evidence about this Messiah. And it's easier for us to look at this and see how the whole Bible points to Jesus because Jesus was born and He demonstrated His fulfillment of prophecy and He came back to life after they crucified Him. So we know Jesus because we've seen Him in history and we've, we've get to know Him as, you know, we can commit our lives to Him and He can fill us with His Spirit. We can know Jesus. But these people back who were captives, captive Israel... They had no idea who Jesus was because it would be hundreds of years before Jesus would come on the scene. And so they read this and they're wondering, when is God going to make this happen? We, we look at this and we think, of course, it's Jesus. They look at it and they say, you know, Psalm 2 can clearly refer to David. If you read through the psalm and it talks about God's anointed and God's king, well, they figure that must be David. But it's also talking about things that hadn't happened yet. And, and so those references find their full meaning and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In, in uh, verse number 7, the king says, it says, the king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This very day I have become your father. Ask me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal property. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will smash them like a potter's jar. So Jesus is put in charge of the nation. And He's put in charge of all the nations. And He's coming in judgment. That This is not about God's, you know, God blessing politicians. Whatever they say, God bless America and God bless... This is not about Jesus coming to be a blessing to nations. This is about Jesus coming to, to rule and reign over the nations and bring judgment against the nations. This is about the rule of Jesus which will come with judgment. And... and of judgment of the world and judgment of everybody in the world. It's popular to hear people say, don't judge me. You've probably heard that over and over in our culture. But let me tell you what, being judged by a loving Christian, by a wise Christian who tells you repent and believe and get your life turned around, that is going to be a far more pleasant experience than when Jesus comes back to cleanse the world with fire. So people ought to be saying to Christians, Please judge me. Please point me in the right path because you don't want to have to deal with Christ's wrath when He comes back in judgment. And why does Jesus have to go to such extremes? Why does Jesus have to come back? This, the first verse of this psalm tells us why. Because the nations rage. All across the world, the nations are standing against God. And people all across, in, in our nation that was built on godly principles, our nation which was founded on the Bible, the laws came out of the Ten Commandments. I mean, we are a Christian nation from our founding. But even our nation has gotten lukewarm. We've forgotten God. We've pushed them out. So many leaders have decided we don't want God in our nation. And, and the nations are raging and plotting to throw off God's rule. And you can see this right now on an individual level across our society, on a governmental level across our society, all over the world. So God hands the nations over to Jesus. Not to coddle, not to hug and say it's okay, but to crush their rebellion like someone smashing a clay pot with an iron rod. It's wrong for people to, 
it's wrong for nations to rebel against God. And, and it's wrong for anybody to say, I'm not, I don't want to deal with your rule, God. I don't want to deal with it. You're not going to be my God. I don't want you. It's wrong. So when Jesus comes to put things right, there will be no escaping His judgment. He will rule over all and no one will be able to oppose Him. So where do we stand as Americans in our nation? We are a nation of rebels from the beginning. We started off in rebellion. A week ago, we celebrated the fact that 13 British colonies decided that they weren't going to obey their king anymore. They had had it with their king, and so they were going to throw off his rule. They were going to rage against their king. They said, we're going to cut our cords and throw off the rule of British Empire. Imagine today if 13 of the states decided that we're going to throw off the rule of Washington, D.C. No longer are we going to obey what the government tells us to do. And so 13 states declare war against the rest of the country. That's what it would be like when the 13 colonies declared war against the British Empire. And, and it would be today, if that happened, it would be just like 1776. Some of the people in this country would call them heroes, and others would call them traitors. And the founders plotted together to throw off the rule of King George, and that's what happened. Some of them said they were heroes, and some of them said they were traitors. And they said, let's cast off the king's cords from us. And, and every year... We take the day off. I mean, 200 and almost 40 years later, we take the day off and we have cookouts and we shoot off fireworks to commemorate the rebelliousness of our nation. And, of course, they were rebelling against King George, not King Jesus. They were very clearly still... In fact, they were promoting subjecting ourselves to King Jesus. They were throwing off an earthly king. But here's a really interesting thought. Where does the Bible tell people to fight against their earthly rulers? It doesn't. It never says you need to, to fight for your independence. You need to fight for your freedom. It doesn't ever say that. Romans 13 starts off, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except by God's appointment and the authorities that exist have been instituted or ordained by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God. So were the, were the colonies disobeying God? Paul wrote this while, while there was a brutal Roman emperor named Nero in power. And Nero did things that were far worse than taxation without representation. Nero basically declared war against the Christians. And he committed all sorts of terrible, gruesome atrocities against anybody who claimed Jesus. He would do things like he would tie them up and loose wild dogs on them to attack them. He would cover them with tar and put them on poles and light them on fire so that he'd have human lamps for his garden at nighttime. I mean, Herod, or Nero, was a nasty, nasty ruler. And so while Nero's in charge, Paul writes, Christians, subject yourself to, to your authorities. You do what your ruling governments tell you to do. I mean, this was a Nero was a wicked and tyrannical ruler far worse than the British Empire. And yet Paul wrote that believers should submit themselves to Roman rule. In fact, there were believers in the colonies who refused to take part in the rebellion because of what the Bible says about subjecting yourself to authority. There are people who said, no, the Bible says we have to subject ourselves to our rule so we're not going to fight. And... Jesus himself said, you know, to this Roman rule, you know, he said things like, if a Roman soldier tells you 
to carry all his stuff for a mile, which was law. The law said, if a soldier says you carry my stuff for a mile, you had to carry their stuff for a mile. And Jesus said, if, a, if the soldier says carry it for a mile, you carry it for two. Not only do you subject yourself to the, to the rule of your authorities, but you go beyond to, to serve them. And Jesus never spoke out about ending slave labor. He never spoke out about allowing women to vote or to own property or to have equal rights. He never said that we should fight for our freedom of religion. He never said any of that kind of stuff. So here's a really interesting question. If you had lived in 1776 with the colonies who were deciding to repel, would you have stood with them knowing that that's what the Bible says? Would you stand up to fight against the British crown? That's really something to think about, isn't it? And, of course, we all understand from Daniel that God is the one who ultimately rules over the nations, that God gives the kingdoms to whoever He wants, that God puts up kings, He puts them on the throne, and God deposes kings at His pleasure. And, in fact, the reason that He handed Israel over to their enemies was because they had rebelled against God's rule. And so God said, Israel, you're no longer going to rule yourself. I'm going to put other people in charge of you. And almost 240 years ago, God decided to give the fledgling American rebels providence to win their independence against the world's most powerful military at the time. So God helped the colonists take over their own country and have independence. And of course, if you know the truth of our history, then you know that the vast majority of our founders were strong believers who defended their cause and and formed their government based on biblical principles. So it wasn't like they were a bunch of heathen atheists who just wanted to rebel. They really were serious about their faith and they, were, they did all sorts of things. Once they had their independence, they did all sorts of things to promote people being Christians. They printed Bibles and had them put out in the schools and they did all sorts of things to make sure that this nation followed God. Um, however, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. If your enemy attacks you, you let him attack you. Jesus allowed His government, it was the, G, the government that executed Jesus. And He allowed it. He had the power to stop it, but He allowed His government to kill Him. And all the disciples were tortured by their government because of their faith. Countless believers through the ages have been tortured and killed by their governments because of their faith. And the Bible doesn't say, you know, fight for your independence. It says, when you're persecuted, you pray for your enemies and, and subject yourself to your authorities. And, and these so Christians have gone out preaching knowing that it was a death sentence and they've gone out spreading Bibles around the world knowing that they could be locked up in jail for life. So for sharing the good news of Jesus, many people have given their lives and many people have been lost their families and been locked away and jailed and tortured because of the good news of Jesus. So where do you stand? Where do you stand in all this? Today, Paul's admonition to submit ourselves to our rulers is no less relevant than it was when he first wrote it a couple thousand years ago. So what gives you the right to whine and complain about the President or Congress or the Supreme Court when you don't like what they do? What gives you the right? Of course, the Declaration of Independence says that we have the right, it says you have the duty to throw off governments if they continue to despotically abuse the governed, if they continue to be tyrants, 
then it's your duty to throw off that government. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. Not what the Bible says, but that's what the, our government, that's what our founding documents say. But that certainly doesn't sound like what Paul said in Romans. So we have this kind of weird spot. We have this very unique government. We were the first people in the world to have the kind of government where the people were in charge. And, and so our government was designed to be under the authority of the people. Our government, by definition, is supposed to answer to us. So it's okay that we you know, work to throw off evil rulers because that's what our law says we're supposed to do. We're pretty lucky in that. There's a lot of nations where it's not like that. So our view of our authority, through, you know, for two centuries, our view of authority is a little bit skewed. It's different from the rest of the world. It's different from ancient Israel and, and pretty much the, every government before the United States and even a lot of governments today. We ought to thank God that we don't live in a dictatorship today and that we have a, a, a repre- semi-representative government. It's supposed to be representative. Somewhat represents us. Um, we ought to be thankful for that. Even with all its imperfections, we ought to be thankful. Our charter as a nation clearly states that the government derives its power from the consent of the governed, which means the government only operates by our permission. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, we give our government permission to rule us. It's not like that in many places in the world. Many places in the world, the government says, you do. And that's it, no question. In fact, it's becoming less and less like that in our own country. It used to be we say and the government do, but now it's the government says and we do. It's becoming more and more like that. Um, you know, they tell you what kind of light bulb you can have in your house, how much water your toilet can flush. I mean, there are laws that govern how you can live your life and what kind of things you can own. And, and as our government continues to tell us, you know, where you can stand to exercise your free speech. It used to be you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the country, and say whatever you wanted. But now they're, you know, they're, there's free speech zones. You, if you want to say something, you have to go stand there. You know? So the government is more and more saying that you know, if you want to own a business, you have to sacrifice this much of your religious freedom. If you want to run a, run a business, you still have to you know, do things that are against your belief, like buy abortion pills, that kind of thing. And so more and more, our government is starting to look like the rest of the world. But the, the laws, the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence says that our job is to rule our government and keep them in order. But, so there's a, but there's a huge difference between all the world's governments, including ours, and God's government. Jesus does not derive His power from us. In fact, His power is not derived at all. No one gives Jesus His power. His power is absolute. Jesus has authority because He is the author. He wrote the universe and therefore He has authority over it. His rule is by right as God. He doesn't ask permission to rule. He rules because it's His. The world is His creation and it's His property to do, to do with as He pleases. Jesus is God's Anointed One. Capital A, capital O. Jesus is the Messiah. Capital M. And Jesus is God's King. Jesus is God's Son. He is the One. And you ought to thank your stars. You ought to thank God that He is a good God. Because He doesn't have to be good. I mean, His character says He has to be good. But if God was evil, 
There's no one to tell him not to be evil. And we'd all be suffering, but thank God that He's a good God. Thank God that He's a, a kind God, a righteous God, a just God, a merciful God. If you're smart, you want Jesus to be in charge. You want to subject yourself to Jesus. You want Him to have absolute, unquestionable authority over all things. As human beings, we've all screwed up in the past. We know what people can be like. And, and we know that we should be wary of any other human being in power over us. That you don't want to, only a fool wants to hand the keys of their life off to some other human being. And even a good one, even a nice human being. You want to be very careful who you put in charge of yourself. And there's been many people in the past who have said that. Be careful what you vote for. Be careful. You're, you get the government that you deserve because what you tolerate in office is what's going to happen. And so you ought to be extremely careful who you give power over you. That's why we have term limits. Because, you know, even if they're good, we just let them have a temporary job and then we'll have somebody else to give them a fresh chance because we don't want them to get used to it and get power in their head. That's why William Penn said, Providence has given our people their choice of their rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of a Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. He said, it's your duty to, to elect Christians because God help you if you elect people who aren't devoted followers of Christ and who live good moral lives. You start electing people who are immoral and who don't follow God, you're going to go to pot real quick. And Colorado's done that literally. So history is littered with people like Nero, like Hitler, like Saddam Hussein, like Pol Pot and, and Stalin and Mao Zedong. There's all sorts of rulers down through history who paint... Perfect pictures of that saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen it happen over and over. We know people. We know what people do. But there is one person who we know for sure would never fall into that mess. There is one person who is absolutely incorruptible. And there is no chance that he would ever turn wrong or do the wrong thing. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the one king who can be trusted with absolute power because he is absolutely good. There is no evil in him. He, he lived a whole life and never sinned one time. Not that he would have, you know, not that we would have much of a choice if Jesus was an evil ruler. It's not like we could throw him off. But he is good and he can be trusted and he's proven himself over and over again. So we can praise Him wholeheartedly knowing that He is just and knowing that He's merciful and knowing that He's wise and not only honest, but the truth Himself. Jesus is the truth. And, and Isaiah 11 says, it talks about Jesus. It says, A shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from His roots. The Lord's Spirit, the Lord's Spirit will rest on Him. A Spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom a spirit that provides the ability to execute plans, a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. So it talks about a descendant of David. And you know, all of David's descendants we have seen, as good as some of them were, they were all bad in one way or another. They all messed up in some way or another. And yet this... Prophecy talks about, you know, you cut off a tree and you're left with a stump and sometimes a sucker will grow out of that stump. 
and you'll get little branches that'll still still life in there. And that's what this says, that out of Jesse's stump, even though it looks like the line of David has been cut off and it's ended and there are no kings in Israel, that someone is going to come out of that root and he's going to have the Spirit of God upon him. And he is going to rule with absolute loyalty to God. He's going to take delight in obeying the Lord and he's not going to judge. He's not going to rule by appearance like so many people in the world judge. He's going to judge by truth because he is truth. And so that's Jesus. I mean, we know that that's Jesus. That was prophecy long before Jesus came, but we know that's Jesus. So would you vote for Jesus? I mean, knowing the kind of person that he is, wouldn't a smart person, a wise person would want Jesus in charge. They would want Jesus ruling because he's the only person that we can absolutely trust to be fair and honest and righteous forever and ever. He can't be bribed. He can't be swayed. He can't be caught by lawyer's tricks and small print. There is nothing that can screw up Jesus. He is incorruptible. He is perfect. And what does Jesus do with all that power that He has? John three says, or John 13 says, because Jesus knew that the Father had handed all things over to Him, God gave Jesus all the power as the Son of God. And it says, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so he got up from his meal. This is the night before he was killed. He removed his outer clothes. He took a towel and tied it around himself. He poured water into the wash basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he had wrapped around himself. The, the creator of the universe, the one with all the power to do with whatever he wanted, got down on his hands and knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And he knew that he had power over everything. It says he knew that God had given him, he granted him all authority. So he knew he had it. But instead of being corrupted, instead of putting an end to all the, the nonsense, instead of ending the pain while he was being tortured and crucified, instead of stopping the suffering and the humiliation and all the, the comments that he had getting through his ministry, instead of putting an end to all that, Jesus got on his hands and knees and he served his followers. And he gave his life. Early in the morning hours, he would stand that later that morning, he would stand silently and endure mockery and beating and degradation as the church and the state colluded together to kill him. He submitted to it all. He submitted to those authorities. The kangaroo court, the inhuman treatment, the torture, and even death on a cross. He let it happen. He bore the consequences of rebellion even though he had never rebelled. Not once. Jesus knew no sin, and yet He became sin for us. His body endured the lashes so that our souls could be healed. He, he was bruised so that our transgressions might be forgiven. His heart was broken so that our hearts could be healed. And that's what Jesus does with absolute power and absolute authority. And that's why we can trust Him to rule over everything. The one who rules over all the nations loves the nations enough to die for them. He's a good king, a just king, a servant king, a merciful king, and most importantly, a risen and eternal king whose reign shall never end. Isaiah 9.7 says, His dominion will be vast and He will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward, from evermore. Can you imagine a just and fair government forever that never goes bad, a, you know, that no politician can screw up? 
That's what we're promised. It's going to be in, it's going to be headed in Israel. Israel's is going to be the capital of the world because Jesus will be on the throne and there will be a just and fair government forever. This government, I mean that's government of peace. I mean, you want peace in the world, you want peace in the Middle East, you need it under Jesus. That's the only way to get it. That's the only way to get peace is under Jesus. And if you reject Him, which is your choice, which is any nation's choice, we can submit to Christ or we can expect His judgment. And that's the only choice there is. There is no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't accept Him, you're going to have the opposite of that. You're going to have death and lies and it's going to be terrible. So the, there is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other name by which the world can be saved than Jesus Christ. This is true for you. It's true for me. It's true for kings. It's true for kingdoms. It's true for everybody. There is no escape from the wrath of God other than the grace of God Himself. So let me finish up Psalm 2. So now This is verse 10. So now you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, Submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear. Repent in terror. Give sincere homage. Otherwise, He will be angry and you will die because of your behavior when His anger quickly ignites. How blessed are those who take shelter in Him. So it says, rejoice in the Lord. Serve Him, obviously because He's God. And it says, it says rejoice with trembling. Which reminds me of if you've ever been if you ever had a cop come up behind you with their lights on and you get that, you know, that fear and that adrenaline rush and then they pass by you and they're after somebody else, you ever felt that? Or you've been in a life or death situation where you feel that rush of, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, but then you don't die, which we know because you're still here, and you feel that leftover, oh, praise the Lord, I'm so glad I'm still alive, I'm so glad I'm, you know, you feel, you've ever felt that feeling? That's the rejoicing Lord with trembling that you could have died because God is going to judge all sin, but you got the grace of God. And so you, you made it by the skin of your teeth. Praise the Lord. That's fear. and That's rejoicing and trembling. And that's what that's talking about. So, so what is really troubling is that our nation is increasing. It's raging against God. We are going the opposite way of the way we need to go. The founders constantly prayed for guidance and for providence from God. And today, in our foolish rebellion, they rebelled against a tyrant king, but they, re- they remained faithful to God. I mean, they might not have been obeying Scripture when they rebelled against their king, but at least they obeyed the king of kings. And so, the founders constantly prayed for guidance and providence. Today, in our foolish rebellion, our nation rejects God, the God who, who gave our nation life, who granted us liberty. Now, instead of rebelling against tyranny, we rebel against the Lord. And, and, and the moral fabric that held us together for, for over 200 years is quickly unraveling and we're falling apart. And, and, and what are you doing about it besides complaining? What are you doing to save the nation? What are you doing to save yourself? What are you doing to save the people around you? Jesus said, give unto Caesar. Which He wasn't talking about taxes. He said, give under Caesar, that's with Caesar's. So if it's a Roman coin, you give it to it's his. I mean, that's sure. It's his money. But give unto God that which belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. So give it to him. And and so when you think about what we're supposed to give to our country, you know, it's nice to be patriotic and it's nice to, you know, there's people that give their lives to defend the nation, whether it's a good cause or not. They do what their commanders tell them to. And 
And there are lots of people who, who put themselves aside to serve their neighborhoods, to serve their cities, to serve their states. There's lots of people who really do sacrifice because they want to serve one another. But more than that, we ought to be serving God. Before you whine about your elected officials and your taxes and the expense of, of the war that's going on and, and the scandals that the president seems to be in charge of, there is something far more pressing that you ought to be thinking about. And that's the spiritual state of our nation. Because every other problem comes out of the fact that we have pushed God out. Every problem in our nation comes because we have rejected the God who blesses. So when we reject blessings, we wind up with curses. If you want to see our government fixed, if you want to see our nation have prosperity and liberty, the best hope, the only hope for any nation is to give full allegiance to God. That is the only thing that will fix our problems. The destiny of our nation is either to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ or to be smashed into the into bits by the wrath of His judgment. Those are the only two options for every nation. You submit to Jesus or you're smashed in judgment. There is no other way. You can't vote anybody into office who's going to solve that problem. You have to get the, the nation to submit to Jesus. It's not achieved by voting or by calling your congressman. Or, 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 or I mean, all that stuff is good. You're, you're supposed to be in charge of your government and you deserve the government that you have if you're not doing that stuff. You deserve the government you have if you are doing that stuff. So, if you really want to save the country though, get on your knees. Every day, pray for your leaders. Pray for your nation. And then, obey the command of your king, the king of kings, and get out there and make disciples. That's the best hope for this country. Make disciples and teach them to obey. Teach our nation to trust and obey Jesus. That's what will save us. The only true freedom can be found in the truth of Jesus Christ. If our nation and her leaders will abide in the Word of God, then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And that's, the, and that's it. Every other avenue will lead only to slavery and death. So your options are Jesus or annihilation. The revolution did pretty good for a while. But if you want liberty that lasts, that truly lasts, not for just a couple centuries, but forever and ever, start a revival. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much that we do live in a nation with so much freedom. And in spite of our problems, we do have a lot of freedom. And we're very grateful for that. And Lord, we want to see our country good again. We want to see a prosperous country and a free country with people who, who care for one another and, and take care of the, the, what we've been granted power over. And Lord, we know that the only real way to see that is for us to serve You as a nation, as individuals. For us to, to put You in charge of our lives and to voluntarily submit to Your authority. God, help us to do that because we know if we don't voluntarily submit to Your authority, that our nation's going to be destroyed under Your authority anyway. So God, help us to do it the right way. Help us to see Your truth. Help us to spread Your truth and help us to turn this world around person by person. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.